On this episode of DevOps Mountain Podcast, I have a conversation with Mary Tate Fisher. She is a curtain engineer hailing from near New Orleans, Louisiana. She lives her life with a certainty and confidence that is truly admirable. And in this episode, she interviews me about as much as I interview her. It was a good time. I met with Mary at her curtain shop in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We sat on the porch for our interview. It was a bustling day in downtown Eureka, so you'll hear some background hum of traffic and the chattering of human activity at Oscar's Cafe next door. If you can listen through all that stuff, I hope you will be delighted as much as I was with my conversation with Mary. And I should add that Mary has dark and silvery hair that cascades down way past her waist. She must have been growing it for decades. Yoo-hoo. I don't have a mask, Mary. I'm kicked outside. How do you feel about haircuts? Um, it's a personal decision for each of us. I don't feel the need to be... Um, trendy with the way that I look anymore. Maybe once upon a time, but I'm all about comfort now. Nice. Is he's, there like he's is, cool. is there like a deal about the long hairs? Because I remember in New Orleans there was a woman named Fern mm-hmm. who was from somewhere in Arkansas, but she was living in New Orleans. And um, I met her for some interiors thing and she said Oh, so you're a long hair too. And I'm thinking, oh, is that a thing? Apparently, what was her ethnicity? She's just American, Southern. Yeah. yeah. Indians believe it gives you a sixth, American Indians, if you can say that. Mm. It gives you like a sixth sense or something. You know, belief is a powerful thing, right? That's true. Um, so we're here at your shop. Yes. What? led you to doing it seems like a niche niche thing to make curtains so what like what steered you to that so i have an undergraduate degree in fine arts and painting mm-hmm. and i always wanted to do something creative but as you know you can't make a living um starting out in your 20s doing anything of merit um artistically unless you just have a, a lot of good luck opportunity so I had a son I had to support. So I started working at a, um, at a home decorating place and saw where there was a lot of opportunity in New Orleans to be creative mm-hmm. with what you do. And so after working there for five years and not really being able to support my son, I decided just to strike out on my own and did a lot of moonlighting and started, I got in with some really high-powered, um, deep-pocketed designers in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and um, they saw that I could be creative, like painting on fabric, and embellishing fabric, and doing trims and things with paper and stuff that nobody else was doing. So they were of the ilk where 
oh, she's a pro, let's let her run with her ideas. Mm -hmm. And it was a really good combination of letting me be artistic with what I do and then produce a product that was strong and stable and something that had good design to it. Yeah. It sounds like you were able to look at the fabric in like a three-dimensional way instead of a two-dimensional oh, way Oh, yeah, or you have to do that. It's yeah. like an engineer. It's like being a fabric engineer. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, I don't think I could ever do anything that was dry. Uh, yeah. And not affording me the chance to get that inner flame about being creative out of me. Because I really believe that that's when we're closest to whatever the concept of God is, is when yeah. we're creating. Like being true to your own spirit, fulfilling your spiritual needs. Yes, it's, it's a creative thing I think all of us have, but some of us have never been taught to let that open up inside of you. Yeah. What does moonlighting mean exactly? Moonlighting is when you're working at a job and then you get extra work on the side. So you're working in the moonlight extra to pay the bills. I see. That makes sense. Uh, How do you know what to ask someone like me that you you really know nothing about the interiors business? Um, I was just curious, like, wonder what's going to interest Jimmy about what I have to say. It's just about how you found your way in your life. Oh, hmm. Being a creative person makes it more interesting and maybe it's not that just you're creative it's that you're you know you're focusing on your work also being creative you know it's not like you're just you have a job that you do and then you're like creative as a hobby you see and so like to find a path Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through life where you're like able to connect with that piece of you and not neglect it and, uh, cause yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about curtains. Well, you know, I didn't start out in curtains. When we lived here previously in Eureka, I had a gallery and I was doing three dimensional woven artwork. And what year was that? It was, we moved here in like 78. Jamie was born here in 80 and we left in 83. And Susan Morrison was my gallery. It was also Chris's gallery. And so I was the top seller in the gallery because she was a really good salesperson. And she put me front and center in her big plate windows. And it's unusual work, three-dimensional fiber arts that was a little bit different than what it's like, not macrame or anything, which was what people were exposed to, but it was a different kind of fiber statement. Mm-hmm. So we were getting all kind of grants. We were getting all kind of big, um, big item jobs. Um, and then we moved to New Orleans. So personally, what happened to me, the need to support my son, you know, I always tell my son, you saved my life. Because the need to provide enough money for both of us and a little bit of good luck opportunity, getting with the right people, but being hungry for it. And being hungry for it meant I was going to do a good job. I was going to do a better job 
than anybody else around. So I would build up the foundational stability of of the economic process. Right. And then in the gravy was being able to do the stenciling and the painting and all the extra fun stuff that I really enjoyed. Right. So it's kind of a combination between your aesthetic of I'm willing to do what it takes to make it happen and mm -hmm. then getting some some serendipitous opportunity. Yeah. It also seems like you keep saying like good luck. But it also is just that it's also sounding more to me like you were just willing to it. well you were manifesting it, but then you were willing to compromise, you know, yeah. to meet in the middle yes, where the economics met yeah. your creative needs. Right. But it had to be in a place where there was a need and a lot of money for what I was getting into, and Eureka would never have been able to afford me that kind of opportunity like New Orleans did. Right. Because in New Orleans everyone um, is so social and entertains so much. Their yeah. interiors is much more important than anything else to them. They've got to have a certain look and they've got to beat out their neighbors. So when and you... And then they tell their neighbors and you get more work right. and, and it builds yep. like that. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's like each job you have to do so well because that creates the next job. Yeah, I mean, so there's like a lot of you pressure. You know that with what you do. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure in that too, right? Um, did you feel you, that pressure? Yeah. I felt the pressure to make everything right mm -hmm. because it's exacting. You know, if you're off a half an inch or an inch somewhere, you're screwed. And so, um, I've been. It's it's been a good ride so far, in that respect. Did. And also with the seeking out of opportunities, was it like you started looking for opportunities or they were really just appearing? They kind of just really appeared. Yeah. Like when I was moonlighting, it was very hard. I would get up at three in the morning, I would work on my extra work, get my son ready for school, go to my job, come back, feed him, do homework, and then stay up till midnight working. Because my shop was always in my house for the extra work. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was, there were times when I was really looking for the inn and someone would call me, another artisan, and say, hey, I've got these designers that are looking for someone to do X, Y, Z. Are you interested? I'm like, sure, I'll go talk to them. And then that gets, these people were always getting published. And getting published was a big key because, you know, there was a time when interior magazines was something that everybody looked at before this was really before internet mm -hmm. so the interior rags oh they'd see something and then they'd look in the resources and they'd see who made it so they would call the workroom and say oh you want this project come look at this so if you if you started out now in 2021 with the idea that you had back then Do you think that getting yourself out there would be easier or harder? And then what do you think that the odds of success would be? Because like, there's obviously Instagram, which is easy, I would say, but then it's like, there's millions, just millions of people out there. I think it would be harder. 
because I don't know it just depends on where you are in your life I mean mm -hmm. in New Orleans it's a real closed society even though there's a whole lot of internet right now about where you can go and what you can do and everybody thinks every housewife thinks they're a des designer but getting in it it's like living in Venice it's that center of interior work that exploded that's not exploding now everybody's interacting with it mm -hmm. so the people that I were with it was a real small club of all the really wealthy people and if they saw Bitsy's work that's all this beautiful handwork curtains they know that they can invest in someone that did that work instead of just going off to you know Pinterest or finding it that yeah, way. Yeah, it's like you can't find the heartbeat of the city yeah, on the exactly. internet. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Exactly. So we were kind of, you kind of mentioned it uh, earlier and I've got it written down here like um, about working your life around having children and how it's, you know, he saved your life, your son. Uh, what was like the value of art or the value of craft that you, tr did you try and teach any of that to him while you were doing it? Like, uh, No, but he, he's picked it up because yeah. of what he does now. His dad is <clears throat> an amazing woodworker and he was split between both of us. So he has the woodworking aesthetic and the hardworking aesthetic, but he also has the creative um, visual assessment of color and proportion and stuff from me, just from really from being around all of it. Yeah. Plus he's, he's a combination of both of our genetics. So right. I really think he embraced it because it was comfortable to him. He always knew it. So that's why he's good at it right now. It reminds me of like keeping your ear to the ground like listening to your spirit and it's like you say it's these good luck opportunities but it's also being listening for those opportunities and then like acting on them too yeah and it it's sounds true. like he picked some of that up from you yeah it's just true. being ready it's a conglomeration of your talent yeah. and your ability and honestly i really do believe there's a lot of manifestation involved in it i think if you direct yourself toward a certain level in life you can manifest it I mean it's like there's so, there were so many things in my life that I had no control over that just came to me that I wanted to happen but I didn't necessarily make it happen mm -hmm. that contributed to the success of of what I do in the enjoyment part and in the economic part do you feel fortunate to be the person who's like just focused on the thing that yeah, they need to I've do. I've never had like a five-year plan or something. Yeah. It's always been intuitive. Mm -hmm. Like investing in Eureka, something just said, oh, you have a, you have some extra money, just put a down payment on the house. It'll work out. Or another property or another property. It wasn't like, that's where I think that the, the di manifested directive was for me. And you can call it other things. Faith, sure. Um, confidence, maybe. Confidence know. is a big part of it. I mean, you have to sell yourself also. Mm -hmm. And you go into um, performance mode, yeah. more or less. It's just like being a performer. 
you've got yourself and then there's when you put that hat on in front of other people you put an, another face on and you're in performance mode i mean i see it with indigo she's when she gets on the stage she's all business her business her essence so yeah i think having a plan and being married to a certain thing in life you have to be bendable and malleable you have to be able to switch when something switches if you can't do that then it's kind of destructive i think Uh, let's go back a little farther. So, you're from New Orleans, but are you from New Orleans, like, proper, air quotes? Or are you from a, a, a more rural area of New Orleans? I grew up in New Orleans. Um, in the city? In the city, um, for some of my life. My mother died when I was very young. So my father, there was this thing in New Orleans called White Flight, where... Um, Black people were moving into the city, and a lot of the white people moved to Metairie, which is like a suburb. So my high schooling was in Metairie, whereas Chris grew up in the center of Uptown. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. What was that like? Metairie? Well, what was it like growing up in New Orleans? Like what type of, uh, you know, like what would uh, it was, you and your friends do, you know? It was. Um, it was oh, you don't great. want to go on the record to say that <laughs> stuff, huh? No. New Orleans was very different back then. Like, we were young, hippie chicks. We could, we could hitchhike around town barefoot and never be afraid. There was never any issue. Back then, we had this great music venue called The Warehouse, mm -hmm. which is right by the projects in New Orleans. It was like a big taboo place. We were very free back then in New Orleans to explore the French Quarter and and the funky parts of, you know, back of town and stuff. I could never do that now. So it was it was enriching. It was the Hare Krishna time. It was. What is that? When the Haris would sell um, flowers and stuff all around town. You don't know that, about the Hare Krishnas. You should look that up. Hare Krishnas. The Hare Krishna people were everywhere, selling things, making money, and giving them to their... I don't think they're Buddhists. I'm not quite sure, but... Um, yeah, it was great growing up in New Orleans. I enjoyed it. Did you have brothers and sisters? I had an older brother, 10 years older than me. So not much hanging out with him because of the age disparity, or...? Yeah, I was just, I was very independent, you know, I never wanted to be home. As soon as I could get out of the house and go to college, that's the deal. I just, I didn't connect at all with the family that I was issued. I had a stepmother that was really pretty nasty mm -hmm. and just wanted to get away from all that. So, um, I can't imagine growing up anywhere else. I think it was a great place to learn a lot about culture and Mardi Gras and, you know, the Indians and everything that went on in New Orleans and still goes on. Mm -hmm. A little diluted now, but um, 
Maybe. I haven't been down there in a minute. It's changed. sewing machine when I was probably let me think well I had an aunt who was a seamstress and I would go spend summers with her in North Louisiana and make Barbie clothes and she spent a lot of time with me she taught me how to make stuffed animals and clothes for myself and she was such a great influence she was a very saintly woman never spoke a bad word about anybody. But I didn't get my first sewing machine till probably I was 14 and I started making my own clothes back then. But sewing was never anything that I envisioned for myself as a career, ever. It just kind of fell into place that way. I mean, it's not what, what I want to do when I retire either. I'm ready to move it over. Retirement? When is that? Two more years when I'm 70. And you're going to just quit? No, I'm going to do another business. I want to do surface design. I want to do screening and printing of my designs on fabrics. Kind of a recipe. A recipe? Like you kind of, it's like a recipe for other people to make it. Is no, I want to do it. I want to make. I don't know what it is then. You're you're screen printing things. Yeah. So like. Now we do a lot of um, borders and things that are stenciled, and painted on the fabric. Mm -hmm. With screens, you can make the screen with the design, and repeat it mm. on down like a bolt of fabric, and um, it's a great industry, and I really want to find out a lot about it very interested in doing that. Is it like the cutting edge of the industry? No, the digital thing is yeah. the deal now and I don't want to do digital. It's kind of a it's kind of an ancient um, it's like block printing. It's like stamping or something. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. It's like block printing or or just a surface design on fabric. Yeah. That's what I want to do. And what would you say your style is? Mm. Like is it French? Is it... I don't even know the terminology, you know? Like, there's got to be genres of so interior design. My eye is trained to the, the French style. Yeah. But it's not my style. Like, I'm really just the hands. The designers, they come to me and they say, how would this fabric look in this kind of design? Or what do you think we should do on, you know... To make this interesting, this balance, this curtain, this slipcover. Mm -hmm. So I just actually do the actual making of the thing, and voila, they've got whatever they want. So my style, what I like, I like a, a French, like a country, relaxed, um, like un-Walmart looking, stiff kind of curtain thing which is hard for me here because <clears throat> you have to be educated about that kind of look and a lot of people up here aren't. They 
have spent their time learning and spending their money on outdoor things, not interior things. So they've not really learned and investigated what certain styles there are, you know? Yeah, and it's like a lot of people live inside their devices now, too. That's true, yeah, now, um, sure. Is that, how yeah. do you feel about that? Personally? Yeah. I think it, it's overwhelmingly unbalanced. As far as, like, they spend too much time on their device? Or? Yeah, according to me, I think mm -hmm. there's a world out there. There's a world that should be lived, not constant photographing your meal or enjoy the experience of the present moment. I think being on the devices takes away from that and can be addictive. I know how that is. Like, uh, what are you listening to right now? I basically listen to all my old CDs that I have from years ago. Mm -hmm. Coldplay, that kind of stuff. When did you blossom into, like, listening to music? Was Were you very a young child? I always played the piano. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I always was classically oriented in that manner. But it was more like... It wasn't so much the music as it was the process of making the music and how I felt. If I was all involved in some issue with my friends and my boyfriend or something, it was such a great outlet for me, and I can feel it right now, being able to let go and express it on the piano, whether, whether it was forte angriness or whether it was pianissimo just love I could that's that was the connection for me with music when I was in high school and um, I've kept it up a little bit but I always thought it was really important for my children like Indigo to have that aesthetic as a central portion of her life because it teaches you so much about systems, about communication, it's another language, and it's a way to express yourself. You know that. It's very important. It is. And Indigo, so she's your youngest yes. daughter, and uh, mm -hmm. what does she think about what you do? She respects it. It's not her bag, but she respects it because it's provided a lot for her. And she sees all the magazine articles and all the press and working on movies and stuff like that that, you know, impresses young people, she respects it. Yeah. So, speaking of movies, like, you worked on some movies, yes. sets, some movie sets. Yes. How did that happen? Word of mouth. I'm not going to say luck. Yeah. But, um... We were, our, our studio was known for, for being capable of producing something on time and doing it in a way that could be directed. So, <clears throat> so production design people would call us and 
word of mouth, they knew that they could come over, show us some plans, tell us what they wanted. I could do some research, um, and they would have what they needed. And the movie was Interview with a Vampire. Was there another movie, too? Or was that the only one? Um, there were a couple of them. I can't even remember now, Jimmy. There was... Um, Interview was the big one. That was the fun one. And it kind of just, like... You were talking about how it could be just luck, but, like, it was sort of some luck because it just happened to be filmed in New Orleans. It was right there. It was outside so. of New Orleans. Um... We did, the major scenes that we did, well, there, there was an old ancient house called the Pito House in New Orleans on the bayou. And there was this great plantation where what was fascinating to me was watching the movie production happen. So one of the main scenes was in this great big old plantation. And I, you know, I'm from Cajun, heritage, but I never realized how the southern plantation worked. But being in the plantation house, which was huge, and divided off, all it just worked perfectly, the way that it was set up, with people being on the porches all around, the galleries, and then the interior scenes where that could be separate, and it was fascinating to watch the whole process of movie making really was cool and seeing the actors and their narcissisms you know Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise and watching the whole deal with how they worked that we made that were ended up on the cutting room floor. And I'm talking about expensive fabrics. Italian, you know, $400 a yard fabrics. And the scene that would have been like five minutes was cut down to like 20 seconds. That's yeah, all you see. Exactly. You're like, wow, what do they do with all this product when the movie is over? You know, their warehouse somewhere in Hollywood and then maybe auctioned off for later use, maybe not. It's it's really a, a weird and interesting kind of industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I think a lot about, because maybe I've just been taught to think about it you know, along the lines of sustainability and if you're talking about where does all this stuff go? Um, and how much, you know, money, the economics of it, like they're spending so much and, and the return is so little. And I'm really torn in a lot of ways, like, you know, I was just thinking the other day about I like to eat meat and raising just a, a flock, you know, of sheep or having cattle or, or hunting and like the energy that it takes to make that quote unquote product and, and then also the energy that you are spending yourself to go harvest it and the money that you're spending on oh, the tools, that you do all this stuff. And it's this thing where at some point, as like a creative person, I, I think, and I I'm going to ask you about this too. Like, I think that gets lost in the process. 
I think and that it should is where I'm going with it. I think that it should get lost in the process because it gets put to the forefront of a lot of thinking. And it shouldn't, in my opinion, I don't think it should be at the very front because You're talking it's about such a big problem. What goes into it? Yeah, like all the, when you start weighing out, are the organic eggs, like if you have chickens and, and you're raising them and you're feeding them all the things that it takes to raise them, and then you look at the price of oh, them at the grocery store and you kind of weigh these economics into your situation. I just don't think that economics should be at the top of the conversation whenever you're creating art. And then when it comes to the food, it's almost like it's part of life. And where does it cross over into that? That is also like art in a way because you're coexisting with it and it's fulfilling maybe not spiritual needs, but it's fulfilling like right. sustenance and stuff like that. And then when you have this big economic thing that humans have created and it's evolved into such a enormous, powerful thing, just like the, the devices and all the apps and stuff. But that's the human condition, Jimmy. Totally. You know, that's where we've evolved in life. Like, I think it's important for those things to come out because not to necessarily be economized but so many times I'm in here sewing on something and I'm thinking okay this fiber was grown to make this linen it was processed like it was grown in the earth mm -hmm. it was processed with hands it was made into thread it was dyed it was woven into fabric it was distributed through the system it's come to me it's being reorganized into curtains and it's going to hang in someone's house and i think so many people think it's instant it's like mm -hmm. curtains they're the curtains and they don't go into the process of the minuscule things that have to go into making this thing that you think is instant like a movie you go to a theater it's instant you're watching a movie how many people really pause and think what all has gone into this just like with the food what all has gone into this the economy is skewed it's again out of balance and it's exactly. gonna it's gonna tumbleweed into more and more and more like the economics of the thing that's being created doesn't match the true value exactly that's Which true. is like an opinion. The value is like an opinion. Yeah. It happens with music too. You Do you know? think there's an intrinsic value about things uh, hardwired into us as humans though? Like... What is intrinsic exactly? Like mean? love and anger and faith and like the hardwiring of who we are millennium ago as human animals. Do you think there's something about value that's inside of us? Not a perceptual thing, but like mm -hmm. a real, yeah. like I know this is important. Yeah. It, this has value somewhere in the world, this whole conversation. This conversation, right. I believe that too. I think we all know that there's value. I think our lives are so hung up in competition for mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. To get money, to Comparison be powerful. Yeah. To other people. Exactly. Oh, I know. And the social media and media in general makes all that a little 
exacerbated. That's true. And not a little, probably a lot. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some intrinsic things that um, it's such a it's such a philosophical discussion, but it's like you get taught to value things that are not intrinsic. Your environment growing up does and a so lot of then that. you're you're thinking about well I'm supposed to act like this and maybe some people their spirit kind of gets wrapped up and muffled down by sure. trying to value these things sure. that yes. have no yes. return because back to the the phone with the dopamine hits um, dopamine hits and chemical highs are really fun you know I get in ice water and that's really exciting. Um, we play sports and like we run and we do stuff that really is it's chemically rewarding and it returns value to us and like in the form of a lot of things like you can get food because you've went and hunted and that's exciting or you can get food because you farmed it and that's exciting or, or you can be or you healthy can be a maker and you make things with and your you hands. get rewarded that's my dopamine. With your, with your dopamine hits there, and then it well, adds what, value. What is, what is this? She's pointing at my phone. No, I'm just, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, so what is the dopamine value with this? You get it, but well, that's where I'm return. Going, that's where I'm return? going with it. I can't see the return that it works into my value system with its dopamine hits because I try and zoom real far out and, and kind of like you know a Buddhist would say to come out of yourself and not really you know just exist don't don't really judge yourself just kind of look at yourself from far away and looking at myself from far away and if you're far away enough you can see like all of humanity and it's like are these dopamine and we all want to live we like want to survive every living thing like has this intrinsic thing to want to survive and to survive you have to you know, breed. So on one value, breed does breed? breed oh. Like, hmm. create a partnership with somebody and have children. And it sustains humans into the future. And like a lot of our chemical rewards in, ev- in an evolutionary perspective are rewarding that. That's true. And hmm. that phone dopamine hit doesn't lead to survival. Okay. It doesn't get you food. It doesn't... I agree. Repopulate. It does none of those things. And maybe there's there's a lot of people on Earth, too. And so it's all working together. And it's real complicated. That's okay. Yeah. Relationships are part of this... Um, the, dead, the Dead Horse Mountain podcast thing. It's like how your relationships and your work and your life and just people for who they are, right? And like I Relationships gravitate. are hard. They really? are just hard. Tell me about and it. And I'm, I'm brand new. <laughs> You know, um, uh, before we get to to you and Chris here uh, any farther, Jacqueline Frolic, yeah, she described you with your curtain making as, a, or maybe you did in the in the conversation as a workman. You're a workman, like a curtain workman. Okay. Well, and like I'm asking, or is that would you be a workwoman? 
or a work I, right I, like it's a tricky a I curtain think, sculptor i think of it more as a curtain engineer okay and that's what i've got on my website well that's what i'm gonna put that's what i'm gonna intro with whenever i do my oh, overpass okay. i just wanted to know if you were a workman or a workwoman or or what that was all meant because words are moving around i'm a worker you are a worker people would oh i wanted to interject that you know you're talking about yourself but there's a perspective that other people say about you and other people would describe you many people as a workaholic i know so so you are hard on chris about his internet usage do you and and i feel like people are hard on you about your workaholicism how um, do you feel do you feel like what is a workaholic to you the words workaholic seem detrimental. Um, they have a negative feeling, don't they? They do have a negative feeling because it's based on what they think life should be for them. I enjoy what I do, and what I do is slow and methodical. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot longer to do things. I am keeping the machine of life in my family going. Mm -hmm. Thus, I really have to work. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it, thank goodness. It's nothing that I run to. Oh boy, I have to go to work today. And you but, have a really nice place to do it. It's nice here. This is a nice yeah, facility. But the reason this is here is because of what I've done in the past as mm -hmm. a quote workaholic yeah. to get things moving and stable to where in our later life, like now, we can enjoy without the stress of debt, etc. I mean, having no debt is a really freeing state of mind. Yeah. Especially now when things are getting more and more and more. And I always believed that my children deserve as much opportunity as I possibly can give them. And it, it takes money to do that these days. I think that if a person calls another person a workaholic, then it says more about the person who said that. I think you're right, absolutely. When did you meet when did you meet Chris? Chris is walking out of the the shop right now. love not to get into all that personal stuff but that's we, okay we did meet in eureka uh -huh. we were both in susan morrison's gallery together and um i guess that's where we met we didn't hang around the same circles of people because um we were my family was just a lot more centralized and mm -hmm. older than chris's group of people so it's kind of a world's collide thing yeah, yeah, kind of through art. Through art. Mm -hmm. That's important. Mm -hmm. Y'all were simultaneously living in New Orleans and had a place here in Eureka Springs. Yes. When Katrina. Correct. Rolled into New Orleans. Yes. What was? W tell me about that. That was a big shift in y'all's life, was oh it my not? God. Yeah, every, a bunch of people's life. It's yes. a big deal. It was traumatic, and I still feel vestige of the pull of my hometown and that physical place on earth 
whenever I go back there, I'm getting chills thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Because we uprooted Indigo <clears throat> and us. I kept my studio down there for almost two years and would go back and forth. And skeleton crew down there doing what they could. Um, the two people that stayed on were my burlesque dancer workers. Nice. Was, oh, they're so great. They're so great. I love them still. And one of them's going on now to having her own um, curtain worker. Nice. She's great. But going back and forth and the whole trauma of, it was like all the people I knew was picked up at once and just scattered like jacks all over the place. You know, good friends in in Portland that we rarely get to see. Good friends in California we rarely, you know, people were just moved, all of us. And it was tough spiritually on everybody. But um, I'm gonna say luckily again, I figured out a way to be able to keep a lot of my client base in New Orleans that still use me. Um, they needed me then, but then me not being there and having a presence, there were a lot of people that filled in that decided they were gonna do work rooms down there. And my client base kept, kept me, and that's why I'm a workaholic now, up here. People want you to be a Who certain... Who says that? People want... Uh, lots of people. Really? Well, I mean, less than a dozen, but how many people <laughs> live in this town? Uh, a lot of people, and I've experienced this in the last two weeks, um, creating something as work, being a creative person f with your work is a vulnerable position to be in for judgment from other people. Why is that, Jimmy? Well, I don't know. You know, people are just set up differently. And I think it's just a lack of understanding. I, a person in particular, they said, I sent them a song. It's not my song. It's, it's just a song that touched me at a concert, and I had to learn it immediately. It was like the only song that I really was like, wow, this is a good song out of the whole concert. And uh, I learned it, and I sent like a really rough recording, and then the, the person, I thought they would enjoy it. It was like, I liked it, and I just thought they would enjoy it. And then they said, you know, what's up with all your sad songs? And I... So, right I, off the bat, being critical. That's fine. I don't mind the criticism. Like I said, it's a vulnerable spot to be. You're inviting it by being a creative person. Oh. Hmm. I think. Yeah. I guess so. You're putting yourself out there, you know? And then I thought, well, I, you know, sad songs are just moving to me. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And then I read about it a little bit because I was curious and I... It's like people enjoy sad songs because... It plucks an emotion. It makes you empathetic. It makes you feel for other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, like, maybe I'm not... They're like, you don't seem like a sad person all in, you know, in your daily life, but they don't know me that well because, like, a, a human being seems to me like a really complex thing. And, like, <laughs> if you don't think that people in general and maybe creative people have deeper places then those people can understand like I'm like maybe I can go darker places than you can even imagine but I can also get Come to a higher spot than you could ever imagine and then with my 
with my work, quote unquote, with my music, it's like, I don't feel the freedom a lot of times to just create whatever I want to. It's like a lot of times the thing is needing to come out and it has nothing to do with me other than I'm just like the vector of it coming out. And so then for somebody to judge it, it's like, well, you know, maybe they just don't understand completely. But there are also people whose personalities are to immediately pick out the issue. Or even if there is no issue, they they create it. It's like, have you noticed that about some people? Totally. It's like, wow, It's you've always got to try and police something? And I think that that has to do with these devices. And the way that they change our mind. Your mind is like a plastic, moldable thing. And I think smarter healthier people are you know they're not done learning and so they can still learn and their brain can still change and that device and the algorithms are powerful things to change that it can change back but it's like it takes it's going to take effort to go the other way whereas letting the devices and the algorithms manipulate you is damn near effortless that's true it like feels good Guilty. I'm guilty. Well, you know, if you're a visual person, especially. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. So you guys, Katrina, you weren't in New Orleans for Katrina. No, we left. Katrina. You happened evacuated. On, Katrina happened. It was a Friday night. Chris stayed up because the weather was looking like it was going to be weird. Saturday morning, he says we have to go. You've got to go to the shop and get the shop ready. Plywood, putting all the curtains in plastic, putting them up on the tables. So many things to get ready. He says, I'll get the house ready. We left that Saturday, went to North Louisiana, and um, then Monday is when she hit. And that's, we thought we were going home, and then the levee broke. Yeah. And that was it. And we're like, you know, we have friends in Eureka. We should go to Eureka. Immediately got Indigo in school, and then that was history, you know. So now here we are in Eureka. You have, like, a little homestead that used to be a hog farm. Is that fair to say all that? Um, I think it was a, um, I think they made cheese there. They made cheese, too. Yeah, I think it was, from like, what a dairy, Okay. from their cows. They made cheese for some, something in Berryville, I think. That's what Chris said. It's a really cool spot. But that was rented out. Right. So we, I rented, Oscar's was my shop. Eleanor, it was empty. Eleanor rented it to me as long as I wanted it. Got this renovated. Moved into here. And we moved on to Ridgeway. And just kept the rental out there with the boys in it. Yeah. Until we just decided we wanted to move out there. Yeah, and so like looking back on your whole life up till now. Okay, my whole life. Well. My age of reason. Chris said to me the other day, as we were walking around y'all's place, that he felt like finally all the pieces 
in life had came together to a place where he felt like this is I am doing exactly what I want to do every day is that like He's do you feel that way man. do you feel that way about where you are in life or have you felt no. that way for a while or do you feel that way at all I don't think I'll ever have the peace that he has because he is a totally different organism mm-hmm. than me. I absolutely am more fulfilled here, now, this moment, than ever in my life. The pressure of youth is not upon me anymore. In other words, I've still got the vitality, but I don't have the desperation of making things how it should be, you know? Yeah. I'm more accepting. And so, I'm happier here. I love living out in nature. I don't think I would... uh, I always thought that Eureka was my wife and New Orleans was my mistress. But now I don't feel like that anymore because this has become a combination of my wife and mistress. And I haven't said it as husband, as you notice. For some reason, it's more It doesn't female. feel like a husband, yeah. No, it doesn't. It's giving back a whole lot to me here. This community, every day, I'm so thankful for this bubble, this community, and... I've seen a lot of people come and go. Yeah. And my friends here are dying or becoming really sick. And it's it's another change in the process of life that is going to be difficult but has to be accepted. You know, watching people um, get dementia and watching people have physical ailments where they can't get around is hard for me because of the empathy. Um, yeah, Chris, Chris wasn't married, for sure. <laughs> do you feel like you're a master of your craft? This is the last question. Yes, I do. How long have you felt that way? I think I've always felt that way. I've always known it was achievable. Yeah. And when people start seeking you out for what they need, that's when you start feeling that you're the master of your craft. That you're on the path. They want it. You know how that is. It's the applause. The applause is good. It motivates you to go forth. That's true. Thanks so much for indulging me. That's all I got. Oh, that was fun.